Turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I've been sitting on this text for two weeks, so if I preach for an hour, I apologize. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin reading where we left off last time with verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. As we've looked to this letter written by Peter, the first 12 verses that we considered, the theme certainly was one of hope. And now as we've come to verse 13 and continuing on from where we picked up today in verse 17 through 21, there's been a shift in theme. We've moved from a discussion of the hope that we have in Christ to our response to that hope, which is, Holiness. The theme has shifted from hope to holiness. And that's a natural progression. Because we looked last time in verses 13 to 16, Peter begins with the word, therefore. Because of the hope that we have in Christ, because He has shown us mercy, because He has caused us to be born again, because we have the hope of heaven, therefore, we are called to be holy. Not holy in our own strength or by our own standard, but he refers back to the Old Testament and says, because it is written, be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. Our holiness is to the standard of God's holiness. Because we have hope in Christ, because He has saved us, we desire to live holy lives. But, let me ask you this, does that ever feel very, very difficult? Does anybody have a hard time with holy living? Just me? Anyone? Okay, thank you. Made me feel better at least. We know that we are called to be holy as God is holy. We know that we are to come to His Word and to be obedient to what He's called us to do and that our lives should reflect the life of Christ Himself. But what about when we're tempted to rest in something besides our hope in Christ? What about when we're tempted not to rest in Christ, but to conform ourselves to what Peter calls our former lusts? Because let's just be honest, we're all at those points with regularity. It's not a strange thing for us to be tempted to go back to our own way, our old ways. To be tempted to sin. And so as we come to verses 17 through 21, Peter offers to us some motivation 
some help to spur us on to this holy living. He's called us to live holy lives. We have hope in Christ. He says be holy. But how? How do we keep gas in the tank? How do we stay motivated to live this holy life that God has called us to? So in verse 17 to 21, I'll give you two main headings, and there'll be some elaboration under each of those. But the first heading is this, quite simply, we will be judged. We will be judged. Look at verse 17. He says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. God is our judge. He will judge us. We will all stand before Him on one, on one day. And He says He'll judge us as our Father. He says, if you call on the Father, or since you call on the Father. Now when we think of God as our Father, we have to rid ourselves of these distorted views of what a Father is. Did any one of you have a perfect Father? Anybody? Have any of you men been a perfect Father? Okay, I didn't think so. No matter how good of a father you had, he wasn't God. And most likely, some or many of you had a bad father. Abusive one, maybe. And so when we think about God as Father, we're tempted to think of Him through that lens of what we know, of our own experience. And we have to rid ourselves of that. We have to wipe the slate clean and say, what is God like as our Father? And not taint it with the idea of what our earthly Father was like. He does want us to think of Him and to know Him as our Father. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told the disciples, pray like this, Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. He wants us to come to Him and to acknowledge Him as our Father. Paul told the Romans that you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are God's children. He is our Father, and He wants us to know Him as such. But as a perfect Father, He will judge us. And Peter says He will judge us impartially. will judge us without partiality. Now with God, no one can ever say that a sibling received unfair treatment. How many of you have a sibling? How many of you are fully convinced that your sibling received less discipline than you. That's every one of us, right? I know for a fact that my brother, two years younger than me, did not receive near as many spankings or whoopings as I did. I had a two-year head start for one. And then after that, if he got in trouble, it was just assumed I was in on it. So we both got it. I know for a fact I was disciplined more than my brother. And it shows with him. I'm just kidding. I love my brother, okay? <laughs> and then I had a sister 10 years later. Do you think she's ever gotten in trouble for anything? Absolutely not. But God is not that way. God does not show partiality with His children. We will all be judged. We will all stand before Him as our Father, give an account for our lives. And no one will be able to say that they received unfair treatment. We're all on level ground when it comes to God as His children. 
He'll judge us as our Father, but He'll also judge us specifically according to our works. He says He judges without partiality according to each one's works. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul was writing about how that he had laid the foundation and the foundation that was laid was Jesus Christ and how that we're building on this foundation. That's how he describes our Christian life. And he talks about our, our work that we do through the Christian life in terms of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And he says that each one's works will be judged. It will be tried as by fire. Now, how do those things work when they come to fire? You put gold and silver and precious stones through the fire. What happens? It's purified. It proves true. It proves that it's the real thing. What happens when you take wood and hay and straw and put it through the fire? It burns up. It turns to ash. It couldn't stand the test. And when we stand before God, that's how our works will be judged. They will be placed into the fire and they will be proven for what they really are. Whether they were pure works like gold and silver and precious stones or whether they were impure works that won't last. They won't stand the test of judgment like wood and hay and, and straw. Judgment Day will not be when your eternal destiny is determined. That is settled in this life. You're not going to stand before God on Judgment Day as an unbeliever and have your works put on display to see if they were good enough to get you into heaven. If you live this life and reject Christ, reject His work on the cross, live your entire life as an unbeliever and die in your sins, your eternal destiny is settled. You will stand before God, be judged according to your works, but they will prove that you are an unbeliever and you will be judged. You were never a child of God. Now, if you're a Christian... If you have been born again, you stand before God. You're not going to have to stand there and let Him judge your works and see just to make sure that you're going to make it in. No, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again, your eternal destiny is settled. It's firm. You are going to live with God in heaven forever. On that day of judgment, your service will be put to the test. You will be given rewards for what you have done for Christ. If it stands the test of fire. So with this in mind, Peter rightly says in verse 17, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. We're in exile. We're pilgrims through this land. And he says, while you're here, you need to conduct yourselves in fear. Now, Christians have this knee-jerk reaction, this aversion to the word fear, where we hear somebody say that we ought to fear God, and we, we just jump in automatically and say, yes, that means we have reverence for Him, we stand in awe of Him. And that's true. There is a sense of awe, there is a reverence that is included in that idea of fear. But he still said fear. And fear still means fear. And we can't just sweep that under the rug. 
Since God is our Father, we should conduct conduct ourselves in a measure of healthy fear. Don't write off the word fear. I think of it like this. There are things that I did as a kid when my parents weren't around that I would have never thought about doing if they'd have been in the room. Why? Because I feared them. (laughs) I had a usually healthy fear. That fear kept me from doing things that I was told not to do. And it was that same fear that led me to do the things that I was told to do. Even if at the last minute. How many of you had that experience where your mom left in the morning and, they, and she said, when I get home, this better be done. This better be clean or whatever. And you say, yeah, okay. And you plop down in front of the TV. Or you go outside and play. And it comes around about 515 And you hear a car turning in the driveway and you jump up and say, oh no. (laughs) And you run and do the thing that you were supposed to do just in time before she walks in the door. Or she comes in the door and says, is this done? Well, I'm finishing it up right now. That's a fear, right? Now, is that an unhealthy fear? Oh, it can be with earthly parents. But discipline or correction from parents wasn't out of hatred for me, was it? It was because they had a desire for me to do right or to be safe or to be mature. And that was a healthy fear that led me to obedience. We should have no less fear concerning our Heavenly Father. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul said, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He told the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Because we know that God is doing a work in us to make us more like Him, to make us more like Jesus. This is not a fear that should drive us away from God, but a fear that causes us to run to Him. We desire to be holy as His children. We desire to be like our Father. And that holy fear makes us run to the one that we desire to please. And that fear does include a sense of reverence and a sense of awe for the God that motivates us to obey. So when you're tempted to sin, you're tempted to rest in something besides the hope in Christ, it is good for you to remind yourself that you will be judged. And there's a healthy fear that comes along with that. That should help keep us on track. Number two, another motivation for holy living is this. We have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. Look to verse 18 and 19. He says, knowing. This is something you know, okay? Nothing new. Knowing 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now in our modern day, we don't really have a good idea of redemption. We don't have anything good to compare it to. I started thinking about how we use the word redeem in our own day, in our own context. And, and you know, the first thing that came to my mind is actually kind of silly. Um, I don't know if how many of you liked arcades when you were kids. They've totally ruined those things now. Do you know you don't even get tickets anymore? They put it on a dumb little debit card that just tells you how many points you have. You don't even get to stuff your pockets full and like in your shirt and carry these big wads of things around and dump them all up on the counter when you're done. You swipe a card. Come on. It's not the same. But, you know, we used to go, especially when on vacation or something, and we'd, we'd, we'd go to an arcade and we'd stuff our pockets. We'd have them in our shoes and everywhere we could find a stick of ticket. And then you go dump them on the counter and you redeem them for some piece of junk prize, right? That wasn't worth what you paid for all the games. That's not really a good idea of redemption, is it? To be redeemed in the sense that the Bible uses the word is to, to buy back something from bondage by payment of a price, to set free by paying a ransom. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. The word was used mostly of prisoners of war. Might pay a ransom to get that person back. Most commonly would be the use of slaves. Slave market, those, that was the workforce of the day. And to redeem a slave... Someone would go in and pay the price for that slave and then set them free. That's to be redeemed. That's what Jesus did for us. We were in bondage and he purchased us out of our bondage, out of our slavery for salvation. And what were we redeemed from? Peter tells us we were redeemed from an empty way of life. He said you were redeemed from your aimless conduct. Received by tradition from your fathers. It was an empty way of life. It was a life of sin. A couple of weeks ago I read from Ephesians 2. We know what Paul says. That you before you knew Christ were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He said among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. According to the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath just as others. But then he says, but God. But God who was rich in mercy. With his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He saved us from that life of sin, from that, those former lusts in which we were formerly in bondage. He redeemed us from a life of sin. He redeemed us from a life of worldly achievements. Our discipleship group last week read from Mark 10 about the one we call the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, have you kept all the commandments? He said, yeah, I've kept the commandments. Okay, you lack one thing. 
And Jesus went straight for his heart. He knew what he loved. And he said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come back here and follow me. And what did he do? He says he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great riches. See, this guy had it all together. He had all the worldly achievements. He was a ruler. He was wealthy. He still had his youth. He had it all. He would have made a great addition to Jesus' team. If somebody in his position came to us and said, what must I do to have eternal life? We would have said, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Pray this prayer. Join my church. Start tithing. Jesus offered him a life, though he couldn't see it, that was better than all of his worldly achievements. And so he did for us. Maybe you have pursued all of those things. You've gone after wealth. You've gone after status. You've gone after respect and all the things that you thought you would want after this life. And you found them to be empty. But then Jesus comes along and he shows you that you're in your sin, that you're on a path to damnation. And he saves you. He redeems you. He purchases purchases you out of that bondage, out of that slavery. He saves us from a life of sin, a life of worldly achievements, and ultimately a life that leads to eternal death. All of us, regardless of our status, because of our sin, are on our way to hell. I don't think you're supposed to talk about that anymore, but it's true. There is a place of literal, physical, eternal, conscious torment. For those who reject God and Christ and who live in their own lusts. But the redemption that Jesus brings is a redemption from judgment. He'll save us from that bondage and that eternal damnation. If you have been born again, that's what you've been redeemed from. You've been redeemed from this empty way of life. And let me just make a a note to the side here. He says, which you received by tradition from your fathers. This empty way of life that Peter talks about to these in in the early church in in this part of the world. He says, you received that from tradition from your fathers, from your ancestors. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, parents, grandparents, what way of life, what way of conduct are your children or your grandchildren learning from you? Is it a life that pursues their own desires? Is it a life that pursues worldly achievements? Whether you acknowledge it or not, is the life they're picking up from following you a life that will ultimately lead them to eternal death? We must consider these things. Lead them in the way of redemption. That's what we were redeemed from. What were we redeemed by? We were redeemed by Christ's blood. Look to the first part of verse 18 again. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. In verse 19 he says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You weren't redeemed by silver and gold. I mean, that's the most valuable stuff in the world, right? You can go back to a point in history when the American dollar started to mean something. And there might come a time where it means nothing. 
we've all seen in the news just this week, if you're in Russia and you've got lots of the ruble, guess what? You've got a whole lot of nothing now. It's worthless. But what's the thing that's been around forever? Go back as far as you want in human history. What have we been hoarding and trading and saving? Gold. He says you weren't redeemed by silver and gold. You weren't redeemed by money. You weren't redeemed by anything that silver and gold can achieve on earth. You're not redeemed by wealth. You're not redeemed by influence. You're not redeemed by status or power. You're not redeemed by any of these things. But he says you were redeemed by the blood of Christ. But I skipped an adjective, didn't I? You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Oh, it's more precious. It's more costly than silver or gold. In fact, I think you'd go as far as to say as your blood is more precious than silver or gold. There's no amount of money you would take to let somebody come and drain all the blood out of your body. Because you wouldn't have anything to do anything with that money with, right? Your life is precious to you. Your blood is precious to you. Leviticus says the life of the flesh is in the blood. You need it. How much more precious then the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why is His more precious? Because He says He was as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Jesus was our sinless, spotless lamb, our substitute for sin. Scripture pointed to Him in this way from the very beginning. In Exodus 12, he told him to find a lamb without blemish and without spot and to kill it and put the blood over the, the doorposts. And he said, and when my angel passes through Egypt this night, he's going to kill all the firstborn in judgment. But he says, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass over you. It was because of the blood of that young and precious spotless lamb that they were saved from judgment. In Isaiah he wrote that the Christ is one that was oppressed and afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So then it would only make sense that when John the Baptist comes along and he sees Jesus walking towards him, he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb who died for our sins. His blood is precious. When Jesus died on the cross and shed His blood, He was purchasing your redemption. You've sinned against God. You deserve to die. You're a sinner. And for you, justice would be an eternity in hell. Even though you might have been a worthless, rebellious slave to sin, Jesus died in your place. He died as your substitute. And He bought your freedom. He purchased your redemption with His own blood. Here's a couple of things that Peter says about this redemption. He says in verse 20 that we were redeemed by God's eternal plan. 
He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Even though Jesus wasn't revealed until this last age of human history, His redemption of sinners was God's plan from eternity past. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he, he, he called the Jews out. He said, you took this man, Jesus, by lawless hands. You crucified him and you put him to death. But he said this, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You did it out of your anger, out of sin, but it was God's plan from before creation. The plan of redemption was no plan B. It was God's purpose from before creation that His own Son would die for you. And finally, He says, we were redeemed by faith. Verse 21, You who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We don't receive this redemption. We haven't received it by any works. Paul told Titus, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And of course, the Ephesians, again, he said, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, we couldn't do anything to earn our freedom, to earn our redemption. Even our righteousness is filthy rags, but God has redeemed us by His mercy through faith. Simply believing in Jesus. Not merely believing that Jesus died for your sins. Not merely believing that Jesus died to redeem you, but believing in Him. Taking your faith, taking your trust out of yourself and placing it on Jesus. Jesus, you are my only hope for salvation. That's saving faith. So at this point, I think I have to ask, have you experienced this redemption? Are you still a slave to sin? Or have you been redeemed by Jesus Christ? You will face Him on Judgment Day. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You will face Him on Judgment Day either as a slave to sin or as His own child. Your redemption has been paid for. You can't add anything to it. Jesus died in your place. You must simply ask Him for it, believing in Jesus, and He will save you. Would you do that today? Now for you who have been redeemed, does this motivate you to holy living? That's what Peter's trying to do, right? Does this encourage you to go on living for the Lord, forsaking your sin? It should. When you're tempted to sin, you, you just have to remind yourselves of these things. That one day you will stand before God at the judgment. There's a healthy fear that comes along with that. And you need to remind yourself that you are redeemed. You've been purchased out of slavery. 
When you're tempted to sin, you have to say these things. Say it out loud to yourself. I have to say it out loud to myself. I am going to answer for my life on Judgment Day. Do I need to say this to this person who has upset me at this moment? When you're tempted to sin, you can tell yourself, I'm redeemed. I have been purchased by Jesus' blood. Jesus died for this sin that I'm tempted to commit right now. Jesus died for this. I am not a slave to this sin. I am not a slave to gossip. I am not a slave to pornography. I am not a slave to hatred. I am not a slave to bitterness because Jesus has redeemed me. And I can walk away. You have to walk away. You have to remind yourself that you are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the redemption that we have through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that Judgment Day has, doesn't have to be terrifying. That we've been washed, we've been made clean by your blood. But as we try to live holy lives, may we live in a healthy fear, a holy fear. That drives us to desire to please you. And may we forsake our sins in remembering our redemption. And for whoever is here today who has not yet been redeemed, who has not come to you for mercy and asked you for salvation, do that work in their hearts today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.